Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Darcy. It's wonderful to be here with you and your family here this morning. It's wonderful to be on the island. I love the island. As Darcy was saying, uh, my wife, Rebecca, she is from the island. Uh, She grew up in Ladysmith, just down the street. And I'm lucky enough that her parents, my in-laws, are here to critique and let me know how I did following the service. (laughs) My brother-in-law and his Wife is here with uh, very soon to be their second child, which is awesome. Our growing family is a beautiful thing. Your growing family here is a beautiful thing. It's wonderful to see all the renovations. It's a bit chaotic, but I was a youth pastor for 10 years prior to coming on staff at Summit Pacific College, and my motto for my youth ministry was controlled chaos. It's a great way to run a youth ministry, and that's what you're doing here as a church. It's great. (laughs) It's great. Ah, change means growth, means something is happening, which is uh, always a good thing. As you walk through that, God bless you in your journey uh, together as a family. Uh, I was up in Comox at this conference that your pastor was saying, and on the way back last night, uh, I was with a couple of our students who was just kind of joined along for this weekend, and we were driving back from Comox to Nanaimo. We spent the night here in Nanaimo last night, and as we were driving, we were in the left-hand lane. And we saw the lights flickering of an oncoming truck in the other lane, <clears throat> flashing like crazy. So we're like, oh, it must be police. We should make sure we're going the, the speed limit and be good to go. And as like, went, you know, gauged down to the speed limit and we kind of focused on what was going on ahead of us, we realized that it wasn't cops ahead of us. There was a car coming right at us with their headlights in the left-hand lane of our direction this way. And they're coming right at us. And so... Uh, We swerved over to the right lane and into the shoulder, and the guy just went by us. And I know island drivers are known to be bad drivers, but that's a little extreme. (laughs) Anyways, uh, this truck, whoever he was, saved our lives, and I'm hoping many others, believing for many others, but wild, wild journey that we've had so far here on the island. Hey, uh, it's also nice to be here, too, uh, as a representative of the summit. Like Darcy was saying, I'm campus pastor at the school, and I've been there, I'm in my third year now, serving on staff, and it is a pleasure to pastor future pastors. We believe in our school that the students we have there uh, are great leaders with great futures, that God has called them to great ministries, whether that's in the local church or in a counseling format or on the missions field or not-for-profit organization, whatever it may be, we believe we've got great world changers. And there are some of them that are from your church here, which is wonderful. So Leanna is here with us this morning too. Leanna Milligan is one of yours. And Jeremy Wilson is one of yours as well. So thank you so much for partnering with us and sending your family uh, to the school. It's wonderful to serve God's kingdom together. Amen. Amen. I love it. So this morning, we're actually going to open up to the book of Ruth uh, and we're going to do this journey through the book of Ruth this morning. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's four chapters. It's not a long story. Very easy to read through in its entirety, which most of Scripture is uh, written for the context of reading each book in its entirety. This is one thing that we learned in our course, this Luke-Acts theology, is that Luke, when he wrote his books, his works, that he wrote it in the sense for it to be taken in all in its entirety. So we had the responsibility as students to read through the entire book of Luke and the entire book of Acts, and then through both of them together in a sitting. And so uh, 
The book of Ruth is a little bit easier to read through as it's only four chapters rather than the two dozen plus for Luke and then with Acts combined. So anyways, it's a beautiful story, the book of Ruth. It's this story uh, that talks about the history of the Israelite nation. It's a historical book speaking on facts, on people. And it came at a time in the history of the nation of Israel where it was a dark time period. There was a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of renouncing of faith. It's called apostasy. Renouncing or declaring away from God's laws that they didn't want anything to do with following God's laws. It came at a time in between um, the times of the tribes to uh, just prior to that of like the king, the throne with King David and his descendants. And this story of Ruth is so unique in scripture as if you read the book of Judges, you can see that it's the nation of Israel as a whole in which scripture is focusing on. That God is at work in the whole nation of Israel. He's He's the God of the entire nation, the God of this creation, the God of this world. And then this moves to the story of Ruth, which specifies specifically on this family, this little small family unit. And I love how scripture is written where God cares about the larger picture as well as each individual. God cares about his creation and he cares about each person he has created. And this beautiful picture of this family begins in a difficult season. Like I said, it was a dark period for Israel. People were renouncing their faith in God, moving away from God's laws. It was a dark time period. And God desires obedience out of us in everyday lives. Everyday obedience to God is what pleases him. Everyday obedience in the day-to-day walk that we walk with him, our actions, our obedience, brings pleasure to God. It's what he desires out of us. And as people, as the nation of Israel here, moved away from that day-to-day obedience, uh, God brought upon judgment if they were to disobey his laws. And the ways that God brought about judgment when people would disobey his laws were most often through war or through famine. And our story here begins with famine that was in the land of Israel at the time. So there was no food in the ground. People were starving. There's a famine. This is our setting that the author of this book is setting up. And so this couple, Elimelech and Naomi, move from their town the little town of Bethlehem. You may have heard this town before in another section of your Bible. They move from this town and they move to another country, their neighbor country, Moab. And nowhere in scripture does it say at the beginning of this book that Elimelech looked to God for direction of what to do. That rather he left the country, he left the area, he left the laws and went to another country to find food and resources for his family. It was him, his wife Naomi, and their two sons. So they went to Moab. And while they were in Moab, death happened within the family. The father at Limelech passed away and he died. And so now there's Naomi, this widowed woman in a foreign country with her two boys. And as they stayed there, they stayed there for Uh, over a decade, and while they were there, uh, these two boys grew up, and they found women, and they married these two women from Moab, these Moabite women, which according to God's law was wrong. It was wrong to marry outside of the nation of Israel, and so again, they renounced away from God's law, and death happened again in the family. 
both the sons died. And now there's this group of women, this mother and her two daughter-in-laws that are all now widows in this foreign country for Naomi. And heartbreak has hit these women. Heartbreak has hit this family. And so Naomi turns to her daughter-in-laws and says to them, you know what, you're young still. Why don't you go back home to your families? They'll take care of you. Move back to your families. And I myself, I'm gonna go back to my country. I'm gonna go back to Israel. Scripture says in chapter one that she heard that God had visited again and that there was food now in the land, that the famine was over and so she was gonna return to her home country. The one daughter, Orpah, said, okay, mom. And she goes back to her family. And her other daughter, Ruth, responds in one one of the most beautiful ways in which one could respond. So here's this heartbroken, weathered mother who's full of pain and sorrow as a widowed old woman. Says, go home, my daughters. And this is what Ruth responds with. Ruth hugged Naomi and said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. How beautiful. How beautifully written is that? Where you go, I'm gonna go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And Ruth makes this covenant with Naomi of love and of respect and of commitment. It's a beautiful thing. And so these two women journey back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And as they get back home for Naomi, people recognize, hey, is that Naomi? Is that, I remember, I remember when Elimelech and her left over 10 years ago. Is that her? She looks a little different. Maybe she's aged. Well, she's experienced a lot, or experienced a lot of trauma in her life. Family members passing away, her, her husband, her boys, uh, a daughter departing, and the journey back. So she's, She's hurting, she's full of pain and frustration and anger. She feels hopeless and she feels lost. And when she returns and people say, is that, is that Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. My name is not Naomi, my name is Mara. And the meaning of the name Naomi means pleasant. And so she said, don't call me pleasant anymore because that's not who I am. I'm no longer pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She was hurt, and she was without hope. She was frustrated. She said that God has brought his judgment upon me, that I am now bitter. She's actually compared to the female version of Job in the Old Testament. And so she comes back to her country broken and lost and hopeless. And this is the setting in which the author begins this story in the book of Ruth. So like I said, it's a historical book. It was written 1,200 years prior to Jesus on the earth. And it's this story of a wonderful relationship. Because in chapter two, the first verse in chapter two, the author introduces this man by the name of Boaz. Good for you. Boaz. This man by the name of Boaz, who was a man of standing, chapter two says. A good man who owned property. And there began this relationship between this man, Boaz, and Ruth. It's a really cool story. 
So the setting here is this. We have two women now back in Israel. And women in the culture were not looked upon in high regard by any means. Not only were women not looked upon in high regards by any means, there were certain titles that people could take on that would lower their respect level, lower their worth, and make them poorer, both in monetary value and in social status value, could make them poorer. And what it is, is if you were widowed, if you were orphaned, or if you were a foreigner in the country, were the bottom of the barrels for social statuses. And these two women carried all three of those. Widowed, orphaned, and a sojourner, a foreigner in the country. And so here they are in this helpless, broken state of what to do. Where's the answer going to come from? Yes, there's food in the ground now. The famine is over, but I don't have food. Where's my food going to come from? Where's my provision? Where's their future? Where there's hope? And in comes this man, Boaz. So Naomi would have taught Ruth, some of God's laws. Because at the beginning of chapter two, Ruth requests Naomi if she can go glean in the fields. And what gleaning means is to go and pick up basically leftover foods in a field. And so in Leviticus, there were laws for farmers and for their harvesters that when a time came to harvest the field, that if, as you harvest the grain, whatever it is, it's barley in this situation here, As you harvest the grain, if you miss a section or pass a section, you are not allowed to go back and re-harvest that section, okay? So there were one time through harvesting, as well as if you're carrying your grain and you dropped some onto the ground, you were not allowed to pick that grain up. And the reason for that was so that if foreigners or sojourners were to come into the country, they could go to the fields and they could glean. The areas and the sections that were um, following being harvested already, they could pick up. They could pick up the scraps off the ground. Also another rule was the trim, the edges of the field. You were not allowed to harvest because that would be for the sojourners, the foreigners walking through so that they could have food to eat. So there was provision in God's law that Naomi would have told Ruth at some point. Ruth knew of this law at some point, even though being a foreigner. So she goes and makes this step of faith and starts to glean in a field. And it turns out to be Boaz's field. And it turns out that Boaz just shows up that day, which is wild in its own sense too. Because as a wealthy man, he wouldn't have needed to show up often to his fields It says later in chapter two that he had a foreman who watched over his field and watched over his employees. And the author shows that Boaz shows up to the field, greets his foreman, greets his employees, blesses them, and then notices Ruth in the field. Notices this woman in the field, which is so countercultural of that time because he would not have needed to. The, The... Owners of the fields wouldn't have even looked towards gleaners at all. It didn't matter to them. And it was a female who he had heard about. He asked his foreman, well, who is this woman? Well, this is Ruth. This is is the daughter-in-law of Naomi who has returned from Elimelech's clan. And she's here to glean the fields. Oh, and he had heard about the commitment and he heard about the respect and he heard about the love and the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi. And so he himself returned that same respect. It's beautiful. It's amazing. 
And he goes up to Ruth and he greets her in the field, which again is countercultural. And he says, my daughter. He calls her a title that is very different than the ones that she is known for as an orphan, as a widow, and as a sojourner. And says, my daughter. And he talks to her. And he blesses her. And he says, stay here in my field. Don't go anywhere else. I have men that will protect you. So it would have been common in that time for the women who were to glean probably were abused. And so he said, I have men who will protect you. And he also said to her, drink the water that my men have prepared. Again, very different from what culture would have done. Because it was never men who served women. It was women who served men. And so here's this man saying to Ruth, no, no, you go and get served by these men. He also says, come, have dinner with me. Sit at my table with my employees and eat. And so this master of this field eats with his employees. He's a man of standing, this Boaz. And he invites this sojourner, widowed orphan, who's gleaning his field to sit with them. And she eats. And the Bible says that she eats where she could not eat all that she had in front of her. That was more than what she could take in. She had an abundance And so she went back to glean following dinner for the remainder of the evening and then went back home to Naomi. She picked up her her ephah, and it's about 30 to 40 pound bag of the barley in which that she had gleaned. And so Ruth is a strong woman and picks up this bag and her leftover dinner and she like walks over to Naomi's house, drops the food down. And Naomi sees Ruth with this food, and she's like, whoa, where have you been today? Naomi has no clue at this time. And Ruth says, yeah, I was in this field, and guess what? There was this man that I met, and he gave me food, and he gave me water, and he gave me protection, and he took care of me, and I got all this food here. And Naomi's like, what? Who is this? And she said, yeah, this guy, he's, he goes by the name of Boaz. And I could just imagine Naomi, in that moment, call me Mara, frustrated, angry, bitter at God, hurt, without hope, eyebrows bent down. His name is Boaz. Because in that moment, Naomi goes, what? Who? Boaz. Do, Do you know who Boaz is? Do you know that he's actually related to my late husband. He's a part of the same family. He's a part of the same clan. He's what scripture calls their kinsman redeemer, which is a beautiful term. And this morning, I'd like to go through what it means to be a kinsman redeemer because there's laws according to being a kinsman redeemer. And there's these two women in in a nation where they're lost and without hope. Have you ever been lost before? Have ever been in a place where you have no idea where you are, no idea where you're supposed to go and completely lost? I've been in one situation like this as an 18-year-old boy. So while I was going to Summit Pacific College as a student, I was driving a van for a ministry in Surrey, in this city center area, church that put on a ministry for preteen kids, an inner city preteen kids ministry. And I would go around and I would pick students up We'd bring them back to the church, we'd teach them about Jesus, we'd feed them McDonald's, and then we'd send them back home to their parents, all jacked up on sugar and Jesus. And we did this every single Saturday. And then in about October, we went to the corn maze for an event. 
And I never grew up in Surrey. I grew up in Kelowna. And so I'd probably driven around Surrey three, maybe this was the fourth time that I'd ever really driven in Surrey. And as we picked up the kids, I always had a person who was in the van beside me telling me where to go. And we picked up all the kids. We drove to the corn maze. And as we got to the corn maze, one of the kids, part of the group, got sick and he threw up all over the place. And so the leader's like, well, you got to go because I got to stay here with the kids. You got to go drive this kid back home. So I said, okay. We jump in the van and I've been given an address and was told the kid knew how to get home. So I said, okay, great. We'll drive home. I'll remember where I went and I'll come back and we'll be good. So as we drive there, the kid has no clue how to get to his home. I'm in the city of Surrey and have no real clue about where I'm going. I know some places, but not a lot. But I have an address. So, and this is 2006. So this is pre-cell phone, pre-GPS. And I'm an 18-year-old boy who would never ask a, like anybody for direction, right? Like I'm not even, I wasn't even old enough to be a man where I would like never choose to ask somebody for direction. I was still young enough that it just didn't even come to my head to even ask for directions, So here I am driving, and we get to this kid's home. But before we get to this kid's home, the streets in Surrey are like, like, it's like a grid, right? Streets are one way, avs are another way, right? It's just this big cross of a grid. Well, not every street is always like straight through. Some streets stop. There's like houses in the way, and then begin over here again, and yet it's the same name to the street. You know what I'm talking about? Guess what street this kid lived on? on one of those streets where it stopped, had these breaks. And so I found the street and we're like, great, awesome. We're on the way, we'll drop this kid off and I'll get back to the corn maze. Well, this street ends and I didn't see his house number. So I gotta turn all the way back around, take a left, up a block, take a left, go down two blocks, take a left, go down another block, take a right, and I'm back on track. So I happened to have to do that three different times. I hit an end. Finally, we get this kid to his home. I wake him up. We get him inside, give him to his mom. I get back in the van and I start driving back and I'm completely like lost, misplaced my bearings, don't know exactly where I'm at in the city. And so I start driving. And as I'm driving, I find myself to the place where I'm kind of outside the city. It's dark, not a lot of street lights. And as an 18 year old boy, I'm getting a little scared. And so I just pull over and I'm totally, completely lost. And so I say, God, I need your help. Like, I need you to help me in this moment. And so I just prayed and asked God, would you give me some kind of sign to help me from being lost here by myself in the city of Surrey in the dark? And so I say, amen. And as I look up, there's a city bus that said Surrey City Center on the front of it. And I was like, all right, I'm following that bus wherever it goes. So put that thing into drive and I follow the bus and we get to the point where I kind of recognize some buildings again. I'm like, right on, this worked. I prayed and God answered. Imagine that, right? And so I'm driving and then I kind of lose my bearing again. And I'm like, ah, I don't remember this building. I don't remember this building. I don't remember this one. And so I'm in the left-hand lane at the time and right-hand lane here. And there's two lanes coming this way. And uh, I keep my eyes open this time. And I pray again. And I say, God, you did it once. I believe you can do it again. Whatever sign you give me, I'll just accept it. I'll have faith and I'll step out and I'll do it. 
And so as I say amen and kind of bring focus again as I'm driving on the left-hand lane, I see a car lot up on the right-hand side. And to the entrance of the car lot, there was this big orange fluorescent light arrow pointing right into the car lot. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to take the next right and believe that this is God giving me a direction to find out where the corn maze is. So I swerve over to the right-hand lane and I take the next right. And about three kilometers down the road, I see the sign. Cloverdale Corn Maze, which is where the crew is at. How amazing is that, right? I believe that to truly know and to truly understand what it means to be found in Jesus, we first need to know how lost we were to begin with. So spiritually speaking, scripturally speaking, lost doesn't mean just misguided in some location. Lost means being utterly hopeless and without a plan and without a future. And to truly understand the depth of God's salvation in our lives, a hope for a future, the identity of being a child of God, we need to understand truly how lost we were to begin with. Here in this story, Ruth and Naomi were utterly lost and without hope, in complete despair. And along came this kinsman redeemer, which scripturally Christ is classified and paralleled to this kinsman redeemer. And there's laws regarding this kinsman redeemer that had to be met to truly be able to have that title of a kinsman redeemer. In this law, it says, if a foreigner resides among you, becomes rich, and any of your fellow Israelites become poor, and sell themselves to a foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. Well, these women could not redeem themselves by any means. They're the lowest of lows, the orphaned, the widow, the foreigner, females. And the story of Boaz coming in and noticing Ruth, chapter three, there's this relationship that is built of love and respect, very different than that of the love that we would see in stories or in Hollywood today, but one of just pure kindness and respect where Boaz notices the respect that Ruth gave Naomi. And Ruth says, well, well, who am I that you would show me this kind of respect and kindness and love? And begins this relationship of interest and of passion and of consideration where they fall in love with one another. Well, we have a savior who has come to this earth to prove to us his passion and his interest and his love with us. See, this land that Elimelech had, Naomi still had, quote unquote, possession of it. She couldn't do anything of it. She was only a part of this land. It was kind of like a frozen asset. And so somebody could come and purchase this land. And as they were to come to purchase this land, they gain Naomi and Ruth along with it. And so Boaz desires to then become the kinsman redeemer to Ruth and to Naomi and to purchase this land. But in their conversation in chapter three, Boaz knows that there is a closer relative than him to be their kinsman redeemer. And I wanna read out of chapter four here. Chapter four, verse one, it says this. 
Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, so that's the closer relative, came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to, his, to this kinsman redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to, her brother, or to our brother Elimelech, her late husband. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And the man says, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So if he was to redeem it, he would accept Ruth as his wife. If they were to have kids, that means his inheritance would have to be spread without those kids as well. So it may ruin his estate for his current children. So he says, I cannot do it. You do it. Verse eight. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And then he removed his sandal. And Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought for Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. Those are the two boys that had passed away. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among the family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. The story of Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And so there were requirements by the law that had to be met. And the first requirement is that you had to be a relative. You had to be a blood relative to be able to redeem someone. And in our kinsman redeemer in Jesus Christ, this is why Jesus came down to this earth in the form of a baby that you will sing so glorious about in the next couple of weeks. He came down to this earth with us to walk among us, to be our brother our family member. It says in Hebrews 12, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held by slavery, in slavery, by their fear of death. Christ is our closest relative. He is our closest relative. The law required for a close relative to redeem us. This is why God became man. He became incarnate into this world to walk among us because Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He knew that there was a requirement. So God sent his son down to this earth in the form of a baby to walk among us as a man to die on a cross for our sins. He is our closest relative. Amen. Amen, sister. As well, he was willing. Christ, as our redeemer, was willing to come to this earth and to die on a cross for our sins, to pay our debt. See, in the story here at the end of Ruth, there was a closer relative, but he was unwilling to actually pay the debt to pay for the land, to redeem Naomi and Ruth. He was unwilling. A redeemer has to be willing to do so. And he, 
who is so willing and so loving came right away for our need, met at the time which was most needed for us, and became our kinsman redeemer. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Our kinsman redeemer is so willing to surrender his own life, a father to surrender his own child so that we can experience new life to be given a name, to be called daughter, to be called son, to be called a child of God and a co-heir with Christ, to be given worth and value and purpose and hope and a future. That's our kinsman redeemer. So he has to be a relative. He has to be willing. But someone could be a relative and someone could desire to, but they also have to have the means in which to redeem. They have to be able to pay the price needed to redeem. First Peter says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. I'm gonna invite you to come on up and play the piano. See, Boaz was a wealthy man, a man of standing. And he had the financial means, the financial ability to pay for the land in which Naomi and Ruth were attached to and a part of. He was a close relative. He was so willing to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And he had the means to do so. Our kinsman redeemer is our closest relative. A longing and a desire and a willingness to be reunited with his family, with his creation, with his children. And our kinsman redeemer paid the entire debt, all of it. On the land that was seized from us as death and destruction and pain and hurt and bitterness came into man with Adam and Eve when sin came into this world. This land that God had given us had been removed. We'd been removed from it. Put on hold that we cannot buy it back. We cannot buy this back, this relationship with God back with religion, with rituals, with money, with education, nothing. We need a redeemer. Her story, Ruth's story is our story. That's my story brokenness and hurt and pain and famine where Christ came to this earth to give us a hope and a future and a new name to call us a new creation an heir to the throne and a co-heir to Christ that the father's house has a room prepared for us he gave us protection and provision all of that he gives to us as we choose to accept him as savior. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'd like to conclude with a scripture out of Romans. See, Romans 10, nine and 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, 
Bible says you will be saved. It means that relationship is set. That redemption is in place. That means you're given a new name. You're given a new future. You are now a new creation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I want to offer a moment here this morning together, right before we conclude. But as the piano is playing, maybe you need to take a moment just now and confess out loud with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Deep in your heart, ponder the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and that today I can accept him as my kinsman redeemer and be given a new future and a new hope. As I pray, I want to pray a blessing over you. And if that's you in this place who would like to make that confession, this is your time to do so now, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your answer. We thank you for the gift of your son that we will celebrate loudly these next few weeks that we will celebrate with joyfulness and gladness the coming of a Savior, to walk among men, to be called a brother, someone who is a close relative to us, someone who is willing to walk among us, and someone who had the means in which needed to pay our penalty, to pay our debt of death. We thank you, Lord, for salvation through Jesus. We proclaim you as king. We proclaim you as king of this church, king of this city. And Father, I pray a blessing over this church that within these next few weeks, this Christmas season that we embark on, God, I want to pray for lives to be transformed, lives to be changed. I pray for this Christmas production, that it would change families, it would change people, it would change lives, it would turn direction to you, it would focus our eyes and our hearts on you, that those who have renounced their faith, God, that they would come back to their faith in you. I pray that blessing over this church, that the opportunity that they will have with the thousands of people in the next few weeks to proclaim your love and your grace, that people would accept your gift. Yes, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we give you all the glory. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you.